This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. When Johan Nilsson was 19 years old, he stabbed his father to death with an axe. He was sentenced to psychiatric care, and while hospitalized, he was allowed a weekend leave after about two years. But letting him leave the hospital turned out to be a fatal mistake. This is the story of Axe Johan described as one of the most dangerous inmates in Sweden. Welcome to episode 17 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. Today's episode is a horrible one, but before we get into it, I have a couple of podcast recommendations for you. First, it's the wonderful Jessica that hosts the Asian Madness podcast. I love to hear stories from all over the world, and you should definitely check this one out. But let's hear it from Jessica herself. There's a good chance that you, yeah, you, are interested in true crime and all things creepy and weird. If I'm right, then there's also a good chance you might find my podcast, the Asian Madness Podcast, interesting. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and pretty much everywhere else. It's true crime. It's dark. It's morbid, and it's weird. Come explore the dark side of Asia with me, because let's face it, Asia is just as crazy as the rest of the world. And the second recommendation I have for you is one of my longtime favorites. I never miss an episode of Canadian True Crime. You get Canadian crimes presented by Christy's charming Australian accent. Here's Christy. Canada may be known as the friendliest country in the world, but make no mistake, it has some of the most shocking criminal cases too. My name is Christy and I host Canadian True Crime. I'm Australian, but I've been living in Canada for many years. Canadian True Crime takes a deep dive into some of Canada's most well-known cases, like the Ken and Barbie killers, Robert Picton the pig farmer, and many smaller cases you probably haven't heard of, but are just as fascinating. If you're looking for the facts of the case told in a narrative storytelling format with ambient music, you can find me on your favourite podcast app or social media, just by searching for Canadian True Crime. And now it's time to get into today's case. 
Johan Nilsson was born in 1963. He lived with his parents and two older sisters in Överklinten, a locality about an hour north of Umeå on the northeast side of Sweden. Överklinten had 91 inhabitants in 2015, but the place was slightly more populated when Johan lived there. People who knew Johan as a child describe him as very odd from a very early age. He did peculiar things no other child would normally do, such as the time when the bus stopped in Överklinten and he got off his bike and started crawling in under it, dragging his bike with him underneath the bus. Luckily, the bus driver saw him in one of his rearview mirrors and an accident could be avoided. Or the way he was fascinated by old furniture and tools made out of wood. Johan was heavy into collecting old tools and wooden sleighs. He was what we would call a hoarder nowadays. He couldn't bear the thought of throwing anything away. Instead, he always tried to repair the old items he found. His mother, Anita, told the police after the murder that Johan developed normally until he was about five years old. He learned how to read at a very early age, and he had to skip second grade because the teacher thought uh, he was too bright. All the way through school, he scored high grades in all subjects. But he had problems with his temper. Anything could set him off, even the smallest thing. A former classmate said, you will never hit a fellow student or any of his teachers, but he would smash windows and throw chairs into walls and such. Many people described Yuan as very talkative. He spoke to everyone, wherever he was at. People in the grocery store knew him by name, and he always stopped to say hi to the people he met when walking in Överklinten. But something happened in the spring of 1979, when he was 16 years old. He got into some kind of argument with the teacher, and this teacher told Johan, very aggressively, Won't you just shut up already? Johan replied, All right, you had your chance. I'll be quiet. And he kept his promise. Johan didn't say a word for two years. He was so offended by the reprimand that he decided to stay silent. His mother stated to the police after his father Anders was killed that Johan never said a word on his own accord until that day when she came home to see blood on the front yard. That's when Johan uttered, something terrible has happened. Well, let's go to the day of the first murder. It was on Friday, February 26, 1982. One of the neighbors in Överklinten called Johan's father, Anders, to tell him that his sleigh was missing from his house. The neighbor knew of Johan's hoarding tendencies and suspected him of stealing the sleigh. 
Anders, who had noticed yet another old sleigh sitting in the driveway the day before, went to talk to Johan about it. He didn't admit to anything, but he didn't say where the sleigh came from either. So his father decided that they were going to take the sleigh back to the neighbor that same night. This upset Johan, and he silently joined his father in the car. But he didn't say a word to the neighbor when they returned the sleigh. Instead, he just stared at him and pushed the sleigh towards him. On the car ride home, his father gave him a long lecture on why it's not okay to take another person's property. Anders, the father, was becoming very frustrated. This was not the first time things had inexplicably appeared in the house. And Yuan was still not speaking to anyone at this time. I can imagine how upset Anders must have been. I would have been too. Inside Yuan, this incident grew into a monster of resentment towards his father. He had problems falling asleep that night because he was feeling so much shame, anger and guilt. When he woke up the next morning, he acted as if nothing had happened the day before. He started making breakfast, and because both of his older sisters had already moved out of the house, it was just him and his parents at the kitchen table. His mother, Anita, she had to leave at about six because she was going to work. She was a nurse doing home health care for elderly people in the region. Johan and his father were planning on repairing some old items that Johan had found at a swap meet the weekend before. It was February and snow in the north of Sweden. Before Anders and Johan could start working in the garage, they had to shovel all the snow that had fallen during the night. So that's what they did after breakfast. When they finally entered the garage to start working, it didn't take long before Anders felt like something was wrong. Johan was always quiet, but his father noticed something odd about his behavior this morning. There was something about his eyes and the way he looked at him that was off. But before he had finished that thought, he was hit in the back of his head with an axe. Anders fell to the floor and Johan, who had struck him with the axe, assumed that he was dead. So Johan left the garage to go find something he could use to transport the dead body out of there. But when he got back, Anders was stumbling towards the main house, with his hands covering his bleeding head. Johan went into the garage to get the axe again, while Anders managed to get inside the main house. By the time Anders had sat down on the living room couch, Johan followed and gave him another hard strike with the axe. This time, it hit Anders's forehead, and his death was immediate. 
Yuan dragged him outside and put him on a snowmobile sled and sped off. He drove for about 15 minutes through the woods and stopped when he found an old barn where he dumped his father's body. At 10.40, Anita came home from work. Johan ran out the door and immediately approached her with fear in his eyes, saying, Something terrible has happened. Anita was totally surprised to hear Johan speak again, and her initial reaction was to smile. But then it dawned on her what he had said. So she asked him to tell her more. Johan couldn't utter any more words. He just uttered, outside, blood. And Anita's heart started racing. She now noticed the blood in the snow and ran inside to call the police. Two police officers were sent to their house and they pretty soon found bloodstains along the snowmobile tracks going into the woods. So they followed the tracks and found the body of Anders. The police report stated that a body was found in a barn at 2.20 p.m. When they got back to the house to question Johan, he immediately admitted that he did something terrible and said that his father looked like a ghost. Johan was arrested and brought to the police station. In the trial that followed, he was sentenced to institutional psychiatric care with special discharge review. His mother was devastated. Yuan was found to be mentally ill and having serious issues with anger management. He was sent to Umedalen Hospital in Umeå for care. After only six months, he was given his first leave from the hospital. He was allowed to go home to Överklinten to see his mother and two sisters for a weekend in September. This made everyone in the village very upset. They didn't want a crazy man who killed his father with an axe loose on the streets. So they started a petition to complain about it. It said, Regarding your patient, Johan Nilsson from Överklinten, this is in regard to your decision to send Johan home for the weekend of September 24th 1982, without a caretaker from the hospital. We, the people of Överklinten, demand that you never let such a thing happen again. Johan was allowed to walk the streets alone on Saturday, and we were all very uncomfortable and worried about it. Considering what happened to his father, his persecution complex, aggressive behavior, and his night stalking of people in the area. We will not accept any more unsupervised visits to Erwin Clinton. He needs constant supervision by a caretaker, night and day. The petition was signed by almost everyone in Erwin Clinton and sent to the responsible doctors at the hospital. Despite this letter, the hospital gave Johan another leave a year later without a caretaker.
It was during the Christmas holidays of 1983. Johan was sent by cab to his mother's home on the 22nd of December. Before making this decision, they talked to Anita several times and made sure that she was not afraid of her son. In fact, Anita was the one pushing for the leave. She felt sorry for Johan being all alone in the psychiatric ward over Christmas. The holidays were pleasant and they all got along very well. The older sisters came to visit on Christmas Eve and Anita had her brother's family join them for New Year Eve celebration. On January 2nd, Johan was going back to the hospital. Anita started preparing him early that day, explaining how the cab was coming to pick him up at 7 p.m. and how he needed to pack his bags. Yuan was very distressed and restless and begged his mother to stay. Anita was sad to see him go, but after all, he was serving time for committing a very serious crime. She tried reasoning with him but Yuan didn't understand why she wanted him to go. He felt betrayed, and the anger built up inside him, just like it did two years earlier. Yuan left his mother in the kitchen and went out to the garage. Anita was upset and called her brother for comfort, but he didn't answer, and she didn't see Yuan come back into the kitchen. Her back was facing the door. As she was hanging up the phone, the axe came at her with great force. Yuan hit her in the head with the axe multiple times until she lay bleeding on the kitchen floor. The 21-year-old looked at his mother's body and realized what he had done. He dragged her body down the stairs to the laundry room in the basement. In the corner of the laundry room was a water hole. The house was very old, and this was a reminder of the times where there was no running water. Instead, one had to go downstairs to the well to fetch water. The well hadn't been used for many years, and there was a heavy wooden lid covering it. Yuan pushed the lid to the side and placed his mother's body in the water. When he put the lid back, he felt a sense of relief. Problem solved. He went back upstairs and turned all the lights in the house off. The axe was lying on the kitchen floor, so he picked it up and went outside to hide it in the garage. When he got back inside, he made sure it looked like nobody was home, and then he went back to the laundry room in the basement and locked the door behind him. At 7 p.m., a cab driver pulled up to the house in Clinton to give Johan a ride back to the psychiatric ward. He was told that Anita would be home, so he was very surprised to see the house completely dark 
the driver parked his car and walked to the entrance. It was open, so he stepped inside and called out. Hello, anybody home? The house was completely silent and dark. So he turned on the light in the hallway before calling again. Hello, I'm here for you one. Is anybody here? He looked down as he finished his sentence and noticed blood on the floor. Everyone knew what had happened to Anders two years before. So the cab driver immediately called the police. Four officers were sent to the scene. They quickly found blood in the basement stairs and followed the stains to the laundry room. Inside, they heard the sound of Johan moaning and pacing back and forth. They asked him to open the door, but he refused to answer. After some time of considering their options, the police decided to forcefully open the door to the laundry room and arrest Johan. Since he was already serving time for the murder of his father, no charges were made for the murder of his mother. Instead, they sent him back to the hospital where they put an end to all future leaves. He has been kept isolated ever since. Ture Jakobsson, a former police officer and trustee of Johan Nilsson for more than 30 years, said to reporters when asked about the case. Johan doesn't have the ability to communicate with others. He is not able to have a conversation with anyone. He has never been aggressive towards me. He just gives me the silent treatment. But I know that he has been in numerous physical altercations with the hospital staff. Johan is very tall and heavy built. You don't want to get in his way when he acts out. The trustee, Ture, describes Johan as a lost case. Someone who is impossible to treat with normal procedures. He is given medication to keep his aggression levels down. But there is not much else they can do. His food is given to him on a tray. He must eat separate from the other patients. There is no way he can be around other people with a knife and fork in his hands. Ture continues by explaining how Johan spends his days in the ward. He usually spends all of his waking time in the bed, with his comforter covering his face and body. He wants to be left alone. Since he can't read or write anymore, he doesn't have access to books or pens. About 15 years ago, he threw the TV set in his room out the window. So that was the end of his TV watching days. A former nurse at the hospital where Yuan is being treated said to a reporter, It's a unique case. He is treated like Hannibal Lecter to protect the people around him. He is completely isolated from the outside world. He has his own separate area of the psychiatric ward. The now 55-year-old Johan Nilsson has spent 
36 years locked up in a hospital. He is considered incredibly violent and unpredictable. According to one of his former doctors in charge of his treatment, it is highly unlikely that he will ever be let out into society again. He said that they tried everything, but nothing has worked so far. Few other inmates sentenced to institutional psychiatric care in Sweden have spent longer time locked up. Some people claim that Johan was suffering from Capgras delusion when he killed his father and mother. It's a psychiatric disorder in which a person holds a delusion that a friend, a spouse, a parent, or other close family member, or pet for that matter, that they have been replaced by an identical imposer. It can occur in acute, transient, or chronic forms. Cases in which patients hold their belief that time has been warped or substituted have also been reported. The delusion most commonly occurs in individuals diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, but has also been seen in people with brain injury or dementia. Yuan has not been diagnosed with any of these disorders, but then again, he is not cooperating with the doctors to ever find that out. This is a person who spends his days locked up in a room with a blanket over his head. But for how long? He has now spent 36 years in the psychiatric ward and he doesn't seem to ever be released. He has two sisters. The youngest one seems to be living in the house where both her parents were killed. The older sisters lives in another town about three hours away. I haven't been able to find anything about their relationship with their brother today. Do they ever visit him? Does anyone ever visit him? Is he even aware of his surroundings? This is such a sad case of a mentally sick person who kills both his parents. His mother really thought that she could trust him and she let him come home. That was her big mistake. Thank you so much for listening to episode 17 of True Crime Sweden. This episode was researched and written by Johanna Ulstål Friberg. Thank you so much, Johanna. Today, I am replacing the fun fact about Sweden with a story of my own. This is my own hometown murder that kept me up several nights. It was in July of 2015. A couple checked into a hotel called Calea Palace in Calea, Spain. The couple were on a week-long vacation. They had been together for a few years. They met through work and they had a one and a half year old son together. 
they left their son at home with the grandmother on the mother's side. I guess they needed some time on their own. Before they went to Spain, the female, uh, let's call her Linda, confided to her friends that her boyfriend, Gonzales, had been acting strange and that she wasn't sure that she wanted to stay in the relationship. But I guess she decided to give it a try anyway and go along on the trip. The day before they were supposed to go back to Sweden again, Gonzales is caught on the hotel surveillance cameras, dragging what seems to be a heavy suitcase through the lobby. A few hours after this, the police and firefighters are called to a place about a hundred yards from the hotel where a suitcase is burning. They manage to put the fire out and inside the suitcase they find the decapitated body of a woman. This turns out to be Linda. Gonzalez actually called Linda's mother the next day and told her that he and Linda had missed their flight home and that they would be one or two days late. But before he could escape from Spain, Gonzalez was arrested. He said no to any help from the foreign department in Sweden and he always said that he is innocent of the charges. But the police have video surveillance of him walking through the lobby with that heavy suitcase only about half an hour before the police got the alarm about the burning suitcase. But what happened? Nobody really knows because he is not speaking. Maybe they got into a fight and she somehow got killed. But still, how do you dismember a person in a hotel room? He must have had to go out to buy some equipment and stuff. And then he had plenty of time to think this through and decide to call the police instead of dismembering her body. It's said online that he had some kind of drug problem and maybe that was it. Maybe he was under the influence of drugs and that's why he decided to do the things he did. But the scariest part of this story and the reason why this kept me up at night is that this man, Gonzalez, was a substitute teacher at my girl's school. He helped take care of the kids before school if you had to drop them off early. And he also took care of them after school until the parents got off work. The kids loved him. He was always joking and playing with the kids. My kids liked him a lot. And I guess I did too. I had no idea at that time that the person that I dropped my kids off to every day for eight years was later going to kill and dismember his girlfriend while on vacation in Spain. I met this man five days a week for about eight years and I never saw anything wrong with him. This is what keeps me up at night. Thinking about how a person you meet almost every day can be so evil and still you don't see a single sign of it.
Sorry for continuing with a hard topic instead of leaving you off with a fun fact. But I can tell you something that's really cheered me up today. We got the first rain in about two months here in Sweden, and we are so happy about it. We have had the warmest summer in over 250 years. The temperatures have been up around 30 degrees Celsius. That is about 90 degrees Fahrenheit. It might not seem that high to you, but I will assure you, this isn't something that we are used to here in Sweden. We don't have air conditions inside, and our houses are built to keep the warmth inside. It's horrible. We have had a lot of forest fires, and help has been coming from France, Italy, and Poland. Poland actually sent 40 fire trucks with over 100 firemen in, in them. And I've seen pictures and movies from when they were driving up north towards the fire. People have been standing by the road with signs and cheering them on. I hope that the firefighters really felt the love from the citizens of Sweden. But today it's raining and the temperatures has gone down a bit. Let's hope this helps the firefighters out there and makes their job a little easier. Thank you all firefighters in Sweden and other countries who's helping us out. You guys do an amazing job. Thanks again for listening to episode 17 of True Crime Sweden. I really hope to see you next time. Goodbye. Hey do. Thank you.